Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Each month, I like to choose a theme that kind of stays with us all the way through the four podcasts. And this month, we are going to be talking about a topic called re-entry. And I'm not really going to say much more because I want my guests to explain what that is and all of the issues around it. We have two guests to tell us more. Today, we are going to meet a very dear friend of mine, Barbara Richards, who is the founder of Project 180. She is the CEO and president as well. She's a native of Oklahoma, and she began working with incarcerated citizens back in 1997 as the coordinator of a men's support group in the San Francisco jail system. She then moved to Florida in 2004, founded Project 180 in 2006. So Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you, Harriet, and hello to all your listeners. <laughs> okay, so you created a re-entry project called Project 180 can you tell us why you decided to form this nonprofit organization and what your mission is? Yes, I, de I decided to uh, found Project 180 because of the um, educational disparity between individuals who are incarcerated and those who are not. It's quite a wide gap. So I decided to try and do something about that. Our mission for Project 180 is that we seek to reintegrate formerly incarcerated citizens into community life. And I think it's really important for us also to um, um, mention our vision, which is to reduce poverty, homelessness, unemployment, and criminal behavior among formerly incarcerated citizens. Okay. Um, how long ago did you decide to address the issue of reentry and why is this so important to you and to the people impacted by reentry from prison? Um, it was in 1997, as in your introduction, and it's really essential not only for the individuals we serve um, directly who are getting out of prison or jail, but also for the community because incarceration is a life interrupter. It's uh, very similar in its impact to a natural disaster like a tidal wave or a hurricane or an earthquake um, because it destroys everything that someone has built. When you're incarcerated, everything in your regular life stops. So um, I think it's also really important because most of the people we lock up in our country have a disease. It's a metabolic brain disease. Um, causes poor executive decision-making, and it's called addiction. So um, that's why it's so important. All right. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit more about what you just said um, about the, the idea of addiction and maybe its, um, its impact? I'm sure it has a, a ripple effect. Tell, tell us a little more about that. Okay. Uh, 
did you say a peripheral effect? No, I said a ripple effect. Ripple effect, yes, well, both. <laughs> both peripheral right, okay. and ripple. <laughs> we'll take them so, both. <laughs> sure. Well, I'll uh, probably be speaking a little bit about our residential program a little later on. Uh, but the stories that I hear from um, our residents have really informed me about addiction. So let's say that um, a young person is engaged in risk-taking behavior, and the most common risk-taking behavior amongst his or her peers happens to be taking drugs or drinking alcohol. Or uh, they might have a trusted adult in uh, their lives who um, introduces them to um, drugs or alcohol. We had one gentleman in our program um, whose stepfather shot him up for the first time. Um, we had someone else in the program who was 12 years old when a trusted adult friend um, introduced him to heroin. So there are all different kinds of reasons why people might start using, sometimes from an injury, um, and that uh, affects one for the rest of his or her life. Um, if he or she catches the disease of addiction in which the pathways and the chemicals in the brain change and they affect the prefrontal cortex where executive decision-making is made. So from then on, an individual, um, just like our bodies and brains tell us to breathe, an addict's body and brain tell him or her to use, and everything else pretty much goes by the wayside. So in order to get the drugs to feed um, the body and the brain, um, you know, people will do just about anything, just as you or I might do anything to continue breathing. Great. All right. So, um, that that's certainly informative what you just told us now along the way in in thinking about putting a program like this together a, a nonprofit organization together um did you face challenges in creating this uh organization i did and some of them were internal <laughs> <laughs> what does that uh, mean one of those <laughs> was a real lack of knowledge about the nonprofit world and how it works, um, what's necessary um, to make a nonprofit thrive. Um, and it took me about 10 or 12 years to, to make that happen for Project 180. Uh, so I would say that was probably the greatest barrier. Um, I thought everybody would hear about this issue that I began talking about and realize how incredibly valuable it is for the entire community to sort of get a handle on the issue of prisoner reentry uh, by helping people when they get out rather than just throwing them back onto the streets and had no idea that I'd have to be a fundraiser in the, <laughs> in the process. So um, clearly a lack of funding was uh, part of it in the very beginning too. That was one of the challenges I faced and um, Florida corrections was also a man's world. People could not understand why a woman would be interested in um, assisting men or women who are getting out of prison and jail um, to help them thrive uh, in the community. So um, I, I would say that, that uh, that's 
those were probably some of the main reasons. And I was also, of course, doing it in Florida. And as I'm sure, um, you know, many states uh, are in the same situation where things that we're doing in Florida now were things that we were doing in San Francisco 20 years ago in the field of uh, corrections and reentry. So, you know, I think that we have a long way to go here, um, but things are finally uh, starting to move. And I'm very, very grateful to be a part of that. Um, in terms of the challenges, I just wanted to ask you this question. Were there people who felt um, this really wasn't necessary to do that um, men and women would just find their own way? And why were you putting so much effort and energy into this kind of program? It's, um, we have kind of a bad connection, but I, what I understood you to ask was, why did I put so much effort into it? No, I was saying, were there people who kind of pushed back against you saying, um, why would you bother to do something like this? Uh, they'll adjust to society when they get out. Why do they need some special help? I think more than pushback, which mm -hmm. I had very little of to oh, my yes. face. I'm sure there might have been some, you know, mm -hmm. comments, you know, not to my face. But um, I would say people were more curious. And a lot of people, especially starting about seven or eight years ago, began uh, realizing, um, you know, this, this issue was kind of on the periphery of their uh, consciousness. And people would say, you know, I've always wondered what happens to people when they get out of prison. You know, mm. how are they expected to make it when they probably don't have very much? Uh, people get out with very little, right? Don't they just maybe get a bus ticket and that's about it? And so that opened up many conversations with people who are still active in Project 180 today. Mm. Oh, that's, that's great. So you have, we haven't talked about what Project 180 actually does and I'd like you to explain your residential program if you would and how it benefits the, the men. Okay, um, well our residential program is really the heart of Project 180. We also uh, have classes in prisons and jails, a CEO workforce education program and a financial literacy course. We hold a lecture series and have an information and referral service for um, individuals all throughout the state of Florida. And um, our residential program and pilot program that we're starting called First Week Out really are kind of like the heart of what we do. And the residential program, um, we have created an extremely comprehensive array of services and assistance for individuals who are in the program. Both of our houses are for men only. And it's very much like a family. It's a very caring atmosphere. And that I think is just as important as the other things that we offer. Um, we're small enough so that we can serve residents in a very in-depth manner. And the men in the program tell us it's the Rolls Royce of reentry programs. It's so, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny, but um, I'm proud about it as well. Um, we focus on stability in several areas. One is, of course, recovery from drugs and alcohol. 
housing, finances, health, and the restoration of family and community relationships. We do that through a variety of, of means. We provide uh, not only the housing, but we also um, go shopping every week and we get the food from which the men make their meals. Uh, the men contribute $175 a week toward a program fee and they get uh, services back in spades for that um, fee. We also provide clothing, work clothing, tools, steel-toed boots, um, transportation. We get people a phone right away. We have a program where we will match someone's efforts to have their driver's license restored by paying off the fees and fines that prevent them from uh, having a driver's license. Um, and we will match their funds that they use to pay off their um, old fees and fines up to $1,000. And then we have a medical, dental, vision, and mental health um, program as well, where um, we recently received funding from a um, giving circle here in Sarasota, 100 Women Who Care. And uh, we have enough funding from that to be able to offer up to $1,000 per resident um, to receive medical care. Mm. So there are some fairly unusual um, aspects of the program that are really appreciated by the men who come into the program. Sounds wonderful. Now, I, I have a couple questions based on what you just told us. You talk about the men contributing money where, having been in prison, you earn, uh, what, 30 cents an hour. Where does that money come from? That's one. And the other question I had is we talked about addiction. Um, are they clean and sober um, or are they required to attend, you know, support group meetings? Um, what's the story there? Okay. With the program fee, we do not expect anyone to come up with the money immediately. And we used to occasionally get um, scholarships for individuals to help them with their first week or two of their program fee. And then we discovered that the people who uh, came in without a scholarship, um, really uh, their financial management skills improved when they had to you know, get a job as soon as they could and we helped them find employment um, and then have to pay back what they owed for the first two weeks. Um, we were kind of like a friendly bank or a loan program. And so um, when we realized how important that process was for the men, um, that's the way that we handle things now. We don't get scholarships for um, anyone to, to come into the program. Um, your other question was about um, the sobriety of the individuals coming in. And each man does have to be able to pass a urinalysis. Um, if someone has been using and wants to come into the program and we have room, we will have him go to a detox facility. And once he can test clean, uh, then that gives him some room, some space between having used and coming into our program, which is a really important aspect of um, keeping everybody in our homes safe because if someone comes in who is using, 
that can put everybody else at risk of falling back into use again. It's very, very, very difficult to get clean. And, um, you know, it's a daily struggle for most people. Now, is, is, has there been um, a uh, time where someone relapsed while living at the uh, one of your residential homes? And what was the result of that? Yes, people have relapsed and we did, um, I haven't done it recently, but we put together the kind of the, the rate of the number of people who had um, relapsed in the program. And um, it was much higher than I ever anticipated it would be. And I went to our house manager and I was really upset about the fact that we seemed to be having such a low rate of success with the way I looked at it. And he said, are you kidding me? <laughs> he said, it's a miracle that anyone does not use. Mm-hmm. He said, well, in recovery, we talk about the miracle and that's what it is, is being able to not use. So when someone uses, if someone uses in our program, we um, get them to detox where they you know, clean out their system, and then, <clears throat> pardon me, we will welcome them back into into our program. Okay, so they they are given um, a second chance, a third chance. How many how many chances uh, do do the men get? I think so far we've given up to three. Okay, do you have a cutoff? Mm, well. We haven't had to come to that. Oh, that's good. Yet, so. That's good. Yeah. Now, <laughs> it, it, doesn't mean everyone's good. been successful. Right. Um, you mentioned a house manager. Um, do you live with the, the men at the house and kind of manage things, or or how, how does that work? We have, pardon me, three tiers. We have house leaders who live in the home, and they're responsible for certain aspects of the program. Their sort of supervisor is our house manager who does not live in either of the homes, and um, he has certain responsibilities, and then I'm everybody's supervisor, and I have certain responsibilities when it comes to the residential program as well. We have a house meeting once a week on Monday nights at 5 o'clock, and that's a time when we all get together and can discuss any problems that might be having we might be having in the homes or just kind of reiterate, um, you know, anyone's needs or whatever. And it, it really does uh, function as a, a family meeting. So everyone has access to anyone they need to speak with. Um, but we do have certain, um, certain jobs that each person does as well. I see. But you, do you live there? No, I do not. Um, I, Although I, I might, you, somebody might think I do. I'm over at the houses <laughs> so often. Right, right. <laughs> but no, I have my own home. <laughs> now, um, in terms of jobs, you you mentioned that. What kind of jobs um, do you help the men get so they can, you know, um, contribute? Well, interestingly, um, uh, the t- jobs that we try to find for people are companies that have a strong uh, recovery focus. 
So the individuals who own the company may not be in recovery, but they understand the issues enough that they will hire individuals out of the recovery community. And that is just the most wonderful thing. I encourage every employer who is listening to consider um, to consider that. Uh, it, it means so much for someone to have a job. And um, so uh, outside of that, then we have quite a number of other um, you know, connections in the community. Unfortunately, um, most of the jobs that are open to individuals who have been incarcerated or have a criminal history are, um, they're mostly uh, voc like vocational skills um, and construction um, and the trades. Um, unfortunately, there aren't too many professions that are open um, for individuals with criminal histories. Mm. So what what would you say um, where are the jobs that that the men in project 180 uh, have what what areas presently I'm so sorry could you could you repeat that sure um, what jobs did the men in the program have right now what areas of employment the men in the residential program mm -hmm. um, well yeah. we have um, um, between those who are currently in and those who have graduated, we have an electrician, a plumber, commercial plumber, a um, an AC tech. Um, our house manager is a collision and auto body repair technician. Um, we have um, individuals who install windows and doors. Um, we have... Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of everybody right now. Um, we have um, individuals who are doing landscaping. Um, someone was working at uh, a Jiffy Lube. Um, he just uh, went into a, a different um, line of work. Uh, we have a painter. Um, we have salesmen. Um, yeah, that gives you kind of a good, wow. good idea. Wow. That is a huge um, range. That's that's absolutely yep. fantastic. Um, I, I, we're really getting a little bit short on time, and I would love it if you would come back to tell us more. And one of the things I'd like you to tell us about, if you would, is um, some success stories. Are, are you okay. able to do that? Yeah. And you don't have to mention any names, but just um, you know, tell us about that. And, and maybe, you know, look look back at what you have accomplished so far, um, and then maybe we'll also look ahead. And I, I wanted you to talk about your lecture series, um, Strong Voices, and, you know, some of the speakers. So we have some things to talk about. And you also mentioned First Week Out, and I, I don't know much about that, so... Maybe you could tell us more. So if you would come back um, and talk to us some more, that would really be nice. I would like that. I would be honored. I'm okay. so um, excited <laughs> that there's a program like yours. Thank you for starting it. it. I hope you educate lots and lots of people. Yeah, I think it's very important. And our, our guest uh, following you uh, in the coming weeks is going to talk about reentry as well, but um, 
he's he comes at it, you know, in a in a very different way. He covers all 48 states and is talking about the needs of of people. But he this is interesting because he focuses on people who are wrongfully incarcerated and coming out. Now, are any of your men, um, and you're just you just have men, um, any of your men in that um, under that umbrella? Nope, everybody's guilty. <laughs> everybody's guilty. <laughs> and they'll be the first to okay. tell you. <laughs> right. Well, so and that... it's all related to again, um, you know, it, they're all drug-related crimes. So when oh, we solve the addiction issue, when we when we cure that disease, then the crime rate will plummet. And that's that's a topic probably that would go on forever, right? How do we cure addiction? How do we, how do we approach it? It's a, it's a very, very tough, uh, tough topic, I think. Um, There are a lot uh, of great minds working on that issue. Right. And I, I like the fact that um, you've told me the men go to AA meetings uh, on a regular basis. So, you know, they, the goal is to keep their sobriety and stay clean and sober and stay in the pro in your program you were going yes, to say a a or na they, they'll oh, go to a na that's right narcotics mm-hmm. anonymous or alcoholics anonymous. we've kind of set the stage for the next uh, uh segment uh, for you to come and talk to us again and thank you barbara richards of project 180 for helping us uh, shed light on the issue of re-entry and we'll see you next time thank you so much harriet You're welcome.